It's the Ansons Podcast, the week of September 15th. I'm Alan Arnold, the producer, and we are in the middle of a four-part series on soul care. We kicked it off last week, and this week it's a conversation with Sam Blaine and Sarah Hagerty talking about the unseen and hidden places in our lives. In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turned the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves. And surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. All right, I know you've been hearing it and it's time. We have our first female voice on the podcast. Season three felt like, you know, yeah, okay, here we go. We had the pleasure of having Sarah Hagerty on the podcast and she is an author and a mother and a thinker. We had her on to get to talk about her new book that came out just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Unseen. Yeah. So you may have noticed that the value system of the world is in fact visibility and manifest achievement, that you are doing well when your social circle widens and when your impact increases. And that is, in fact, not the value system of the kingdom. So in this conversation, we dig into what the alternative looks like and think you're going to find some really important points in here. Hope you enjoy it. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're excited today to talk about um, not only your story, but a book you have coming out that I think is just right in line with a lot of the questions and stories and internal wrestlings that a lot of young men and women I know have, and not just young men and women, but men and women of all ages. And it's this, mm -hmm. this topic of hiddenness, of being unseen, which is the title of the book. And I'm excited to hear a little bit about it before we get straight into this work. I, I'd love to just begin with, where were you, what was your story as you were, you're coming out of college, you're, you're graduating and you're hitting the, the work scene? Yeah, so I graduated from college and was gonna change the world for God. I, uh, I was volunteering with a ministry that I had then decided to go on full-time staff with. And so I moved to a different city kind of across the country. And it was evangelizing to teenagers to kind of harden to Christ teenagers who weren't necessarily churchgoers, wouldn't necessarily step foot in the door of a church, but were open and hungry as many teenagers are. They just don't know it. And I had just decided that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I, I personally was impacted as a teenager by this ministry and I wanted people to know Jesus. So after college, I moved with kind of a fire in my belly to evangelize and thought Christian life for me was going to be impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm afraid we know a bit of how the story goes from reading your book uh, <laughs> because it did not work out that way. Um, well, I, I mean, I remember that feeling too, though. I mean, as I was propelled from college into the workforce, there was this sense of like, I can do anything you guys can do in probably less time than you've been taking. And I don't know what, what you guys have been doing without me. <laughs> like, let's go. Let's get this thing done. Yeah. And a lot of frustration behind that too. Why, why don't other people get it? I think I found myself saying a lot in my early 20s. Why don't they get it? Whatever mm -hmm. it is, this nebulous it. Get it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I did, I see a lot, I saw a lot of lives change for God. I, I was, the ministry that I worked for was beautiful and I watched high schoolers lives change and their parents' lives change and their parents show up at church who wouldn't have otherwise been at church. And it was sort of this glorious, like moment of watching God move through my heart and my passion and my zeal. But what I found, and it actually was, I was on my honeymoon, if you can believe it. My husband was also in full-time ministry and we kind of had this sprint to our wedding and we went on our honeymoon. And it was maybe the first like real break that we had had in years. And I was sitting poolside with my Bible in my lap, reading my Bible and like kind of dozing off going, this feels like a high school history textbook to me. Um, mm. This is not engaging. And I don't think it's that God isn't engaging. I feel like there's a deadness in my soul that I have not identified. I've been telling all these people about this Jesus who loves them and, and who is 
kind of wildly engaged in their lives. And yet behind closed doors, I don't know that I really believe this. Mm. You describe like just the freneticism I don't know, on the fringes of your way to the honeymoon. Like it was the first moment in a while that you'd slowed down. Is there like connections? And obviously this is a question that I sort of want you to give me the answer to of the pace and its effect on even your experience of what do you do when you got still and had time to sit and read the Bible and, and wrestle with those questions? Was the, How was the pace connected with that? The, you know, I, I think in the back of my mind, and now I can obviously see it so clearly retrospective, but in the back of my mind, the Christian life was a treadmill, you know, and we just got stronger and we ran harder and we ran faster and we just slowly turned the treadmill up and wasn't like our thirties, like our prime. And then our forties, we were just like kicking it and, you know, there's untiring. And I approached the Bible and God in that way too. My times with him were more so just fuel to, to, have me go back into the place of impact, changing the world, changing my community, changing the people around me. And, you know, what I didn't realize is that that actually the kingdom of God is a little bit upside down. And so here I am on my honeymoon and, and my legs would not move any faster. I kept turning the treadmill up, but I just couldn't keep, keep that pace. Mm. I'd love to know what God was up to in that because what I immediately identify with is I think especially in that early 20s rush, I had this feeling that I knew at least what a few of my gifts were, and it felt like the way to walk that out well with God was just to charge forward with them, to use them in every arena that I possibly could to the fullest extent that I possibly could, and that is what that was what my gifting was for. But, you know, as you've described and as I kind of began to encounter as my 20s went on, that that's actually not a life-giving life. Like that use of my gifting wasn't resulting in uh, any kind of life with God and something that was producing the kind of abundance that Jesus promises. And so I'd just love to ask and have you speak to, you know, first of all, what was God after in you're not being able to move anymore. And then there's this this attached thing of uh, you had these gifts, this capacity to interact with kids and had been, you know, by every metric the world would use, doing really well, touching lives, changing communities. And yet that didn't seem to be what Jesus actually had in mind for your gifting. And so the, the two questions together are what was going on in the burnout and then If your abilities, if those gifts that you had uh, were not given to you principally so that you could just run off with them, what were they actually for? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I think I didn't realize how transactional I had made God. Like he was this coach who had expectations of me. And if I could meet those expectations, then I might be afforded more opportunities. And then my experience as a Christian would be more fulfilling. I mean, it really, like, as I look back, it was all very transactional. He wasn't, he wasn't to me necessarily a father behind closed doors who was wanting to whisper to me and engage different parts of my heart. He had an agenda for me and my goal was to fulfill that agenda. And then if I did, then there might be more expectations and, and so in, in, in some senses, my gifts and my talents were really a, uh, of a transactional nature with God. Mm. And I, I think of, you know, as you asked that question, I was thinking of, so after we, you know, honeymoon and then maybe a year later, I mean, I just kind of hit flat out burnout and my husband and I had to step away from full-time ministry, both of us actually just very tired and sort of feeling defeated. Like this is the time in our lives where we're watching our friends. Some of his college friends actually were moving into inner city Richmond and quite literally transforming their city. I mean, they were, and still are, doing just beautiful things for God. And we were feeling like we can barely get up off the couch. We are so tired. And during that time, I just took a job, a part-time job. I mean, I literally was like, if you know, I'm feeling defeated on the inside, I might as well live it out and at least get a job that, I, that can pay some of the bills. And so here I am working at this little boutique, selling French and Italian pottery. And while I was in that store, 
you know, it was the early stages of burnout. So I wasn't even thinking very thoughtfully about it. It just was, I have to do this thing. I got to get up and do the next thing the next day. But I did bring my Bible into the store and I started to see, wait a second, I am producing nothing for God right here. I mean, I knew that that wasn't even on the periphery of my mind. I knew it right in front of me. I was, I'm producing nothing for God. And yet something inside the pages of his word is telling me that he actually likes me here. And so I think that's where the sh- some of the shift came as I started to see, wait a second, there are kind eyes for me when I'm not producing. And if that's the case, then my perception of who God was and why he was giving me the talents he was giving me moved from transactional to like very deeply relational. Mm. It strikes me that you almost did the the kind of typical thing that I know a lot of people are dreaming of backwards. I know of so many guys in my world that had started more on the boutique side and they sit day after day behind the desk and they're wrestling with, man, if only I were living more in uh, my passions and in my dreams, and if only I were working in ministry, then some of these things would be answered. Some of these wrestlings would have purpose. And yet here's your story, having just stepped from that very thing into what can feel like the, what am I doing with my life category job? And yet like in that, it feels like you have this gift to go, okay, wait, I knew that there was something missing from whatever was going on before. And so there's this, there's a shift there and we haven't even gotten to like social perception. This is just, this is just you. This is just what's going on in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. And this was even in the days before any really widespread social perception. So I'm just talking like me alone with God, my internal wrestling. It it, it was profound for me to start to go, could it be, I mean, and this is again, retrospective, but could it be that he likes me when I'm not producing for him? If that's the case, then could it be that some of the dreams that I've had are actually not God-given dreams, but things that will make me feel better about myself as a human being and me taking up air on this earth. Yeah, I don't know that I, I like that question. I don't want to see it, those personally. Ooh, zinger. Oh. You know, you're touching on moving into the very title of your book, these things weighed against each other of, you know, what I could identify as dreams that I have, which are uh, largely motivated by a kind of logic of achievement and definitely visibility And then on the other hand, you have this language of behind closed doors or what you just called there when you were talking about your life in the boutique. And then this relational view of the motivations of God. And I'd just love to hear more. You use the word unseen, obviously, as the title of your book, and develop the concept of being hidden and the core value of that actually in the kingdom. Base, baseline question, what does it look like to be unseen? I think if this question were asked maybe a hundred years ago, it'd be a lot more accessible. The answer would be a lot more accessible to us. But I think in our current culture with so much access to outward impact and then seeing what other people are doing by way of out, outward impact, there really is a distinction between um, making producing for God and growing roots deep in the ground with him such that the fruit in our lives is just a byproduct. So unseen in some ways is digging our roots into the ground and investing in the places that can't be applauded, can't be celebrated necessarily, can't be rewarded, but by him. And it, it is the kingdom of God. It is, it is the gospel. But I think we've gotten in our culture We have just so much access to being seen that we've lost the value of what it looks like to to actually grow in the way God intended, which is down, so that He grows us up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like it's actually an entire paradigm of the value system of the kingdom in that season and in developing uh, this vision for what it looks like to be unseen. What were some of the things you began to realize that Jesus was actually after? Like, what are the priorities 
in a person's life with God? Or even what are the priorities of a person's life? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think one of the first questions I started to ask was, does God need me? You know, and that's one that I've wrestled with over a decade because my husband and I also, we adopted, uh, we've, we have six children, four of our children are adopted and just coming face to face with the orphan crisis and, you know, not, not just in theory, but like standing in an orphanage and watching children who will not necessarily be adopted and will stay there and, and being able to impact the lives of four, only four, you know, then I, you start to wrestle with, does God need me? And yes, he can use me, but, but if he needs me, man, the kind of manpower that he might need is well beyond what my human experience can produce. And to backtrack, I think that's for me, it was seeing even before we adopted, could it be that he actually enjoys engaging with me and doesn't need me? And that if he enjoys engaging with me, could he enjoy engaging with me just as much when I'm not producing for him as when I am making a great impact? And if he enjoys engaging with me when I'm not producing for him, what does that say about his character and his nature and who he is? Like I need, for me in that boutique, it was, I don't think I know this Jesus. I don't think I know this Jesus that is fully comfortable with me and my flesh and that he's not calling me towards repentance of sin or healing or freedom, but that he knows what he made in me and he loves himself in me where I am. For me, it just meant, wow, I got to study what the word says about who he really is and what his eyes look like towards me. Mm. Those seasons can feel so, so I don't know, brutal, so difficult to look yourself in the mirror as you're wrestling with that. Am I okay as just who I am? Because then you have to own that, you know, you're not a series of successes or you're not your list of contacts. I remember there were, there were years where the language that came from my mouth, I didn't, I didn't really look for just sort of admitted one day was that I was looking for something to put my name on. Like I just needed to build something and to be able to point at it and go like that. That is who I am. And in seasons where that is either taken away or not happening to like still look in the mirror and go, wait, you like God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you still want to spend time with me? Because I'm having a little bit of hard time with myself. And you in your book write about them and call them winter seasons, seasons that maybe aren't as, I don't know, they're not the highlight reel that we think we should be living. And those can be really hard. Right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I feel like our winter was seven years long and there's a whole lot of identity wrestling in there when you feel like you just can't produce for God. So how does he, re- I mean, in some ways, I think I had the advantage of my husband and I quite literally, we knew we would be compromising our emotional integrity if we went out and kept trying to produce when something was so awry on the inside. After a period of time, we felt like we got to just press into winter because it's clear we're in it. We keep trying to climb out of it. We keep trying to turn the calendar and change the season and we can't. So oh, let's yeah, because that feels pause. like the answer, right? Like keep like turn these wheels faster and maybe we can climb out of this. Yeah, our culture is built around summer, is built around growth, this, the, the opulence of these beautiful trees and the limbs and can't we just grow up? And after a while, we went, we can't make ourselves grow up. So let's just stay here and actually ask him, what do you want for me here? What do you want for me in this place? And I think for me, that's when I started to see, wait, there's a whole lot of people in his word that moved his heart simply by giving him attention and praise and glory. I mean, I tell the story in the book of Mary of Bethany. You know, Jesus says her story is going to be told throughout the world where the gospel is shared. And what did she do? She gave everything, her entire livelihood, simply to anoint him six days before he died. I mean, what a waste. You know, even the disciples said, "What's why this waste? When there's the poor, why would she give it to you? And he said, she's done a good thing. It's so counter to what our flesh tells us, validates us as human beings. Right. There's this part of me that goes, yes, like I love that story. And I, and I love just the the lavishness of God that to say, like, that was not a waste. Your everything poured out in one moment for me is not a waste. And there's this part of my brain that goes, yep, I can see that. And then there's this l- louder part that tries to like, 
close the door on that part and go, yeah, but look at all the other guys. Like, see how much they were doing. Like, like just thank you. And okay, got that door closed. Thank goodness. Uh, it's it's a hard thing to to hold. It certainly is. And I think that's the, for me, I think what's been the, the experience of the unseen isn't so much like getting a right paradigm or understanding the kingdom as it should be. It's actually just the conversation with God. It's actually just what, how do I feel when I'm unseen, unknown, not celebrated, not producing? Okay. So then there's a whole lot of yuck. I feel, I mean, there's a, who, who wants to stay there? Right. And then how do I invite conversation with God into that place? And if I can invite conversation with God into that place and dialogue with him there and have his eyes on me there, if I can have like three o'clock in the afternoon when I'm folding laundry, be transformed into a place where I can encounter God, in some senses, it feels like then the ceiling is really taken off my life because I can access him anywhere. Mm. You know, you just touched on this, but you were saying that in these seasons where um, you're on you're on no one's radar, and it is the laundry and talking about it's the it's deeply exposing of what actually is in my own heart. And you mentioned that you used, I think you used the word yucky. I'm a big fan of that word. <laughs> really, in, it's a very mature, it's an, sophisticated, it's an underused word. word. Um, <laughs> but when you begin, actually, because I, you know. It seems very likely that when you actually begin a season of kind of turning over the stones and looking at some of the stuff in your own heart, it's there's the, there's a huge risk involved because some of the things that you're going to run into are actually the parts of yourself that you are least proud of um, or that make you feel the most weak. You're living so far outside your glory. What does it look like to engage or respond to the parts in your own heart that you might even be ashamed of? That's a great question. I mean, I think of my children when you ask that question, four of my six who are adopted and typically children who've been adopted, the currency for them is shame. It's just part of, you know, rejection sewn into their little persons from a very early age And one of the things that we've watched, you know, they're kind of like a living laboratory of actually what's exactly going on with my husband and I, just because we hadn't been adopted or weren't like physically orphaned. We still have that same shame thing operating inside of us. We just get to watch it more clearly in them. One of the ways that we see the most profound healing in them is when their sin is exposed or when they're caught in something and they get to watch our eyes on them and our softness and our gentleness in restoring what they broke. And it's that that I feel like really grows and changes my kids. It's not necessarily like teaching them, this is what it means to be a daughter. This is what it looks like. It's actually when they're in their utter weakness and they see us respond kindly and softly that their little hearts grow. I think it's the same way with us and God. You know, we want to keep him out of certain areas of our heart that just feel like it is muck. I mean, the muss of life that that surfaces these thoughts and these motives and the internal dialogue that is not glorifying to God, we kind of want to keep him out of that. And if we can keep kind of scrolling through social media or, you know, doing our little escapes that we wouldn't necessarily even call an escape because, Hey, it's not alcohol, right? It's just like, I'm scrolling my feed. (laughs) But if we can, if we can keep those at bay, then we feel better about ourselves when in actuality, when we invite him into that place, and see, even according to his word, how gentle he is there. I feel like that's what transforms a person. That's what changes me. When I see him, I think of one particular afternoon. You know, obviously my my story is kind of unique because I got six kids. I don't know how many of your listeners have that many people to take care of in their house. But I'm thinking of one particular day that I am I'm just like, you know, snarky with my kids and frustrated and, and, and not being a stellar mom and kind of failing as a wife in the way that I'm relating to my husband. And I'm changing the laundry from, from wash to dry and just going through the ticker tape in my mind of all the ways that I've failed and, and kind of lining them up and, and flogging myself again. Like, here I go again. I just screwed up again. And I just hear the whisper of the Lord in the back of my mind. Hey, I like it when you're weak. 
And man, right there, that day looked totally different. It wasn't, I mean, and then what came to my mind after that was the Lord just highlighting, not the kid that I brushed off and was snarky with, but the one I actually like held on my lap and read a book to. And the way that I actually did make my husband the breakfast that he wanted and kind of sent him off, not, not, not in a way that, you know, I was thinking of the snarky comment I just made to him on the phone and, and the Lord was highlighting something different. And the, it was like the Lord was going back through my day saying, this is actually what I saw about you. I feel like that changes everything when we have his perspective on the parts of our life that we want to hide and we actually see that it's kind and gentle and tender, man, it opens up our hearts more to him. Yeah, it's so good. It strikes me that you can have one or the other. You can have this achievement or you can have this intimacy with God where you're able to hear him better. And and which would you rather have? Because one of those things can be taken away pretty easily and the other can't. And that those seasons where you're, you're talking about putting down roots rather than growing up and hanging the leaves out for everybody to see, like there's just it, clearly in that story you just shared, like it, it, there's fruit that gets born down the road, though it may not be, you know, your winter may be seven years long, like you were saying. Um, that's really there is good. true. And, and that's the thing, you know, I, I think of a phrase that's been coming to me recently is just don't skip steps. I think so many times we want to like grow the limbs on the tree. We want to make all this impact for God. And, and it, that's not bad. I mean, he, he created us for impact. He created us to be great and to be a great, like magnifiers of his glory. But I think that there is a divine order. And sometimes we skip steps. We just want to get there. And he goes, you bury yourself and you find me in the places where no one is looking and see my eyes on you there and come alive there. And then we get to really be partners. And then you really get to see what it's like when I produce fruit through you and you don't feel like you can look at that fruit and go, oh, that was that was produced out of a lot of my own effort and my strength. That was actually just God. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really, really good. There's Okay, so I have this passage from Malcolm Gladwell in my mind. Um, oh, yeah. From David, his book, David and Goliath. And he's mm-hmm. it's a great book. Talking about something that I think really, I mean, he, he's drawing some lines in one of his chapters about how in the happiest countries, they have the highest suicide rates. And it's that perceived expectation that if you're not lining up with it, then you're your difference feels that much more brutal. And this book, you know, several years ago now, he, did, he didn't actually write this part. I wanted him to. And so there's part of me that goes, okay, this, this still has to be said that the role of social media is pervasive. And we just had a conversation the other day about its role in depression. I think if you have these, these images and these highlights and these lives that are put before you, it's a lot like being the person who might be, not as happy in one of the countries that's supposed to be the happiest in the world, your difference feels brutal. And so I, as you, as you put forward these really hopeful and really beautiful thoughts of being unseen, they, they feel, they feel like almost a bunker in a world of like, there's safety here. Um, but if you're not comfortable with being hidden with having these seasons that people aren't all just looking at, then you're probably subjecting yourself to a lot of the the firefight that is just social media. Like I, we've we've had to go through and deleted hours because I go through and I'm like, wow, I guess I'm just not that happy or that creative or doing that much for God because you know my Instagram doesn't look like this. Right. Yeah, I've done. I mean, you know, it's been interesting. I go through different seasons of like kind of my own personal experience experiments with social media. And most of the time, if I've just spent like even 10 minutes scrolling for no, you know, without even having a filter on my mind or being aware of kind of this object in my hand and what it can produce, I walk away feeling bad about myself. And I think of how we, you know, the the word calls us to take captive every thought that lines itself up against the knowledge of God. And yet social media sort of is like this free range. There's no boundaries. Like we just imbibe what's in front of us unfettered. We don't realize what it does to our minds and our person and our understanding even of God. And so in some ways, I think, you know, though, though I don't speak really directly about social media in the book, the message of the book is, man, there's a whole life in God available in the white spaces. We don't need to fill the white spaces 
with this extra noise? And could it be perhaps that we're actually filling the white spaces of our life with this noise because we don't know how to talk to God in that space? Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Just like, wait, let's let that one hang for a little bit. <laughs> I'm interested in, on the one hand, there is the world of noise when it comes at least to other people. There's social media, there's just that really ambiguous thing, public perception, whatever that actually ends up meaning. On the other hand, you know, even in the quiet spaces of our lives, there still are other people. There, you know, there's immediate family members, there's a little community. And I am interested in what it looks like uh, to walk out developing rootedness, uh, living into winter seasons with God, with other people. And you, you talk in the book about this key piece of vulnerability and love just to hear you speak a little bit to, let, let's say you are, you are unseen, uh, you are in hidden years um, when, and whatever it might look like, but God has done something where most of your time and even most of your little heroisms, no one sees. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, you have friends or maybe you, maybe you are married or there are people around you. You know, what does it look like to relate with others in a way that actually represents uh, some of the deep work that God is doing in your heart? That's a great question. I mean, I think with social media, we have sort of taken the hinges off the door of relationship. And there's just such a wide range. Like we feel like we can relate to everybody like they're our closest friends, just because we're simply seeing them online or responding to them online. I think sowing our roots into the ground and inviting a few other people in requires us to be intentional about the people in our lives that we are vulnerable with. And it also, I think our relationships are fueled when we're coming from a place of vulnerability before God. So when I get more comfortable being bare, so to speak, before the Lord, I can bring that into my friendships where I'm actually, we're, we're in relationship to help grow one another in God, not just because we simply keep brushing elbows with each other or we see each other online. So I think there's definitely a place for not just assuming that because someone's in your world or because you can see what they're doing or they can comment on what you're doing, that you're in relationship, but actually asking the Lord and saying, who is it that I'm to invest even the hidden places of my life in, like that I'm to actually let into some of the more secret places. I've got a group of women that we call ourselves the fight club, um, which, you know, Reference, maybe not referencing the movie, <laughs> but more so because we just are in it to fight for each other's hearts and God. We're old enough to realize like, man, this is a fight. If I'm going to be 60 and still walking with God, I will have had a great battle to get there. And one of the things that we just, part of the culture of our relationships is we're not going to, we're skipping the niceties. Like we're just going to be honest with each other about the wrestle in our life. And there are things that I wouldn't say publicly, that I wouldn't share with a group at large, that I wouldn't speak from a platform. But for these five women, yep, they're going to know it. And I want them to push me deeper into Jesus by me sharing it with them. I think there's definitely a context for those kind of relationships when we stop thinking about Every person is a potential friend, but really start going, God, who are the ones who are really going to help me win this battle as I walk it out with you, be at the end of my life and say, I gave my life to you, Jesus. I'm wondering if some of your journey, even relationship with God has informed the way you're able to have those relationships with those other women, because I'm hearing an echo there between the, the surface, the occasional, the yes, like I'm for you and I'm here. But relationally, like there's only so many places I can go. And then as you're able to walk into those waters with your faith, was that when you're able to see that you could go there with a few other people? You're like, okay, this is something that I have been training. Yeah, I feel like if I can let God into some of the recesses of my mind that feel like they're untouchable, you know, the fears, the parts of my history that I wouldn't necessarily want anybody to know 
or the big hurdles for me. My husband and I call it our crazy place, like the places where if someone goes near there, I go crazy or I feel crazy or if if a circumstance happens that triggers that, I cannot think clearly. Now, if I can let God into those and I start to hear his voice in my crazy place, kind of slowly unraveling me, working me down off the ledge, bringing clarity and healing and perspective to that place, it makes it a whole lot easier to walk in friendship with someone and invite them also to understand that piece of me so that they're not just seeing you know, that almost 40-year-old Sarah with six kids who may look like I've got this system down in my home and I'm a writer and I'm a creator, but they actually know there's a whole lot of history behind, you know, for example, me releasing a book. There's a whole lot that's going on back there. But if I can have comfortable dialogue with God about that, or maybe uncomfortable, but frequent dialogue with God about that, then I can also invite friends into that same space. Not, not tons of friends, but a few close friends. Mm, totally. Really good. What I hear again and again is that this only comes out of a deep intimacy with God. And you actually really enjoy a section in your book where you talk about learning the beauty of Jesus. And I just want to leave it there and ask, what do you mean when, you know, what does it look like to develop uh, that kind of daily intimacy when we talk about his eyes for you, uh, his voice for you. And then what does this topic mean that you write about learning the beauty of Jesus? I think about seven years ago, I had coffee with a friend and um, we were just catching up on life. And at the end of our conversation, she said, uh, have you considered adoring God? And I'm like, Sure, everybody does that. Adoration, confession, Thanksgiving, supplication. <laughs> and she's like box checked. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm kidding. I've done that. <laughs> I had my 30-minute quiet time. And she was like, no, actually, like using scripture and adoring God through his word and parts of him that you wouldn't necessarily understand or that you don't necessarily agree with. And it set me on this. I mean, now it's been a seven-year road of First, approaching God's word with the prayer that is, God, I barely know you. You know, I think we can have language for a lot of things, but when we get really quiet, if we can admit that we barely know him and that when the language is stripped away, we're like babies in the understanding of the knowledge of God. For me, that has helped me approach his word with fresh eyes not coming to his word like, I know this, I know this, I know this, but actually going, you know what? I know a ton of verses about you as healer, but I don't really believe it. So teach me, <laughs> so help me. And so adoration for me has been that where I start with the raw, gritty, man, I am really struggling to believe this about you. And if I'm, if I'm really honest, I might have even just told somebody how great you were in this area, God, but I get before you in your word. And if I'm honest, I don't believe it. <laughs> but then from that place, actually saying, teach me, and I want to adore what I don't understand until your word and your spirit opens up to me understanding. And so for me, I think some of seeing the beauty of Jesus is really admitting I actually don't think he's all that beautiful. And I, I don't even know how to spend 10 minutes in his word looking at his beauty because when I get alone, I get uncomfortable. So if I can admit that and then start from that place, then his word kind of seeps into the lower, you know, more hidden parts of me and makes those become more aware of who he is. Mm, there's such a beautiful vulnerability there to admit those places internally that I think a lot of us are embarrassed of to be like, oh, I don't know that I know you that well, God. And that's a, that's a, oh, I'd rather pretend like, no, like I, we, I know you, come on for like, yeah. And there's this other aspect of like, I'm back to when I feel like I am moving in a good direction and I'm sort of put together. There's again, that I'm, I'm staving off vulnerability, right? I'm staving off this need to be working on really kind of anything. I got it all figured out. I, I, you, you touch on a little bit of like, there's that where not only burnout comes from, but potentially like further down the road in life. Like if you want 
to, I mean, you've, you sort of played with this metaphor before already of like the treadmill and the race, which is funny because of like the running the race well, but it's not necessarily just hitting the plus sign on the treadmill to go faster and faster. There's this, you know, that phrase you use, if I'm in my sixties and still living this well, then something will have caused it. I just, there's this interplay there of, I know that personally, I want to fight off places that feel too vulnerable. And yet, and yet what I'm hearing from you is that there's not only great intimacy to be found there, but great growth as well. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, it's it, this thing that we want to avoid and that we kind of, if we're honest, position our lives around avoiding. Like, why do I fill my life with, why do I fill corners of my life with activity? This thing that we want to avoid is actually the thing that could be the catalyst for our growth in God. Mm. You know, our family celebrates the Sabbath and not in any sort of formal or even rigid way. I mean, I still do dishes and cook and we turn the lights on. It's not any, it, it's, it isn't structured in such a way that we don't do any work, but we really just try and dial down for one day of the week. And every week, never fail at like two o'clock on our Saturday Sabbath, I start to feel uncomfortable. And I have the same conversation with God that is, wow, I didn't realize how safe I felt behind my productivity until I put my to-do list and my measurements aside and just rested and realized this skin is something that's going to take a lot of time for me to feel comfortable in. And I got to see your eyes here. When I see your eyes on me here, I grow. When I see your eyes on me, when I don't feel like I have a list of successes to show you, I fall in love with you, God. It's still so hard. How many years have you guys been protecting your Sabbath? I'm assuming years. So yeah, it has been, I mean, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, I'm not sure. So 52 weeks a year, seven years. When do you hit the point where you hit like, or you're not uncomfortable anymore? Because I'm not, (laughs) this isn't a you thing. This is like, so that I know I can just have that out there as like a little target. I, that's exactly, that's a great question. I feel like, I mean, this year, especially because I am turning 40 in a couple in a couple of days, actually. So there's this weird sort of conversation that I'm having in my head about turning 40 and talking to God about and feeling in some ways like, wow, I really have seen, even in this year, especially, like I would say this year has been one of those once in a decade kind of growth spurts for me and God. But yet at the same time, I'm looking at that going, I've grown so much. I feel like I've hurtled a lot this year in my heart and God. And yet at the same time going, man, I have so far to go in understanding how safe you are, God. I have surrender has been the word. I mean, I think surrender and Sabbath can kind of go hand in hand. Like, man, it's this ever unfolding thing where I can surrender to who I am before you and not what I'm producing and Maybe it'll be another decade of Sabbath before I really feel that. <laughs> oh, jeez. In Ugh. that case, I'm so far away that <laughs> why even? You can, I can you just can put that on the shelf. Huh? And I'll rephrase. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's it's it feels like a more honest and real answer than yeah. You know, you just do it a hundred times, and then the hundredth and first, like you're good. I know. Well, and I, you know, it's funny as we're saying this, I'm thinking of my kids again. I remember when we first adopted, so two of our kids, we adopted older and outside the birth order. I mean, really older, like had many years orphaned before we brought them in. And I remember somebody saying, oh, the same, once they've been in your home, the same number of years that they were orphaned, you really, like, that's when you start to see growth. I mean, who knows what, how somebody came up with that number. But in my mind, I thought five, six, seven years, you know, and we're going to have their hearts and it's going to, they're going to be whole. And and now I just laugh because I think, man, I, at 39, am still asking the Lord for greater wholeness in Him and greater healing in Him. And who was I to think that in like five years with children who had experience severe trauma that they would all of a sudden have this restoration when God is looking at my life going, yeah, when you cross over, you're going to be really whole. At this point, you were just describing that you've had this decade of God really uh, sowing into your growth uh, slowly. I'd love to hear who have been some of the you know, influences in, and Jesus working after to, you know, really gain this territory in your heart of hiddenness. And the question, because of reading your book, there were just moments where I was, 
I, no, this is, I hope, complimentary, but reminded of, oh, that's very Brother Lawrence, or, oh, that is very Dallas Willard. Like, this, this seems to be um, something that is worth paying attention to because some of the greats seem to point out this topic, although maybe not at length, but in, uh, you know, that the development of what you've now written about, were there any key figures or even other books that, like, did some of the groundwork for your heart here? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I was immediately thinking of the Proverbs, the proverb eleven fourteen that says, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And I would say, as I look back over the past decade, I have, I, I mean, I'm a voracious reader, not necessarily that I can read like, I mean, I, I read about 10 books at a time in, in paragraphs, not in pages, but I love reading all across the body of Christ, a biblically orthodox body of Christ. I love seeing what the Dallas Willards are saying and Brother Lawrence and, you know, um, even from some of the Catholic tradition. And I, I feel like one of the things that I've seen in my life at this stage is that God is speaking lots of different variations of the same thing in different streams. And man, there's growth in letting other authors counsel me through what they've learned. A lot of them are dead guys, though. I mean, I, I, I feel like unseen. And what I've said to a smaller group that's kind of been a team for us as this book has launched is the dead guys have been saying this forever. You know, it's just there aren't necessarily a ton of really current books out there about hiddenness, but this is age old. I would love to see that on like a marketing campaign somewhere. Yeah, no the dead guys have been saying this forever. <laughs> I mean, I will say what started this whole journey, honestly, was your dad's book, Sacred Romance, was probably the most profound book in terms of impacting the trajectory of my Christian walk with God. And it came at a time, you know, I haven't read it since, so I don't know if I went and picked it back up, what it would feel like now. But in in 2001, when I read it and was headed, you know, on a faster, more robust treadmill, it was profound for me in understanding the heart of God. And then since, and there's been many authors since then. I mean, I, off the top of my head, you know, I, Dan Allender, Cry of the Soul has been pretty profound. Eugene Peterson wrote Answering God about the Psalms, and that was really good for me. I mean, I, I could probably list a dozen. A lot of, I love Spurgeon stuff related to the Psalms, too. The Psalms, I feel like, are are endless. They are limitless in terms of unlocking our hearts in God. But in ter- related to a person, you know, the other influence in my life has been my husband. And and I think we're we're two days away from celebrating 16 years of marriage, and we laugh that we fell in love seven years into marriage. I mean, we really had a rough go of it early on. And to look back now and see how this person that I, I wanted to do everything I could to figure out a way around this covenant because our marriage was so hard and we brushed up against each other so much. And to look back and see the hand of God in bringing this person who was so perfectly fitted to rub my weakness and to speak into the places in me that I wanted to hide and that I wanted to run from, how he called forth beauty from ashes. I just think, I, I you know, the, the place of being a husband or a wife in the, in the face of someone else's hiddenness, there's just profound power there when you can speak life into your spouse's heart. Yeah, I love it. You know, I want to make sure to ask before we wrap up our conversation, you've talked about, you know, kids and the laundry and marriage. And what it makes me think is that there's this concept of hiddenness. And is it specific to a season, like, oh, you know, you enter this discipline of hiddenness, really, you know, in your later 20s, or, you know, it ought to wrap up by the time you hit your 40th birthday. Or, you know, what ages do you see kind of investment in this territory as being applicable to? I mean, I think the 20s are key. I lead a Bible study of a bunch of a handful of 20-somethings, and I say to them, often don't skip steps. Stay hidden if you're supposed to be there, because it's a great gift for, it's a great stretch to put your roots deep into the ground, even when you've got a ton of zeal to produce, to actually choose to, to put your roots in. 
But I'll say at this stage, I feel like hiddenness shows up everywhere. And in every season, there are opportunities. You know, here I am, I have a book that's coming out. And, you know, I want to write another. And I think of, I think my writing years have actually been some of the most hidden for me. And isn't that ironic that I have my name on a book that sits in Barnes and Noble. And yet I would say the writing portion of my life has maybe been one of the more hidden ones. I think in God's kindness, there are always stretches of life where we're afforded the opportunity to hide in him and to have certain aspects of our person and our actions and even our motives be hidden so that we can grow there. I I feel like hiddenness is a great gift. And where I used to think it was something that I just wanted to get out of, now I'm kind of even looking for more opportunities to hide. Where can I promote someone else who's in the same position doing the same thing as I am and let them take the limelight so I can sit in the back and get more of God's eyes on me and more glory because I think he, that's his kingdom. Where can I let someone else thrive where I get to hide in God and, and have him reward me in secret. Mm, So good. Sarah, thank you for being on the podcast today. Um, It's been a killer conversation. You you have kind of like a big season right now. You've got a birthday, uh, an anniversary, and then yesterday (laughs) your book came out. So like, congratulations across the board there. Yes, this week is a very big week of eating whatever I want and staying up late and getting lots of gifts. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, yeah. So for those of you listening, uh, Sarah's book, Unseen, is out as of yesterday, though this podcast will be a little bit delayed. And Sarah, where would you want to direct people to? Do you want to send them to your webpage? Do you want to send them to Amazon? What's the best way for them to sure. find out more? Um, the, the, my website is sarahagerty.net and the book page is sarahagerty.net backslash unseen. But I also, I'm on, I, I'm not really active on social media, except for on Instagram. Um, and that's Sarah Higarty writes. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you guys.